Hey guys, welcome to episode 130 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get started, we just wanted to thank anyone who left us any reviews. Please, if you're new or you just haven't gotten around to it yet, rating us on any platform that you use would be totally helpful for us, as would checking out our sponsors that we have for you today, because that helps us grow the podcast, which is super important for those crazy algorithms, especially on Apple um, Podcasts. So we really just would appreciate any help you could give us. And as always, probably the best thing you can do is just tell people about us. Yeah, just get the word out there. Yeah, I'm. I sound crazy on the true crime podcast like Reddit forum because I'm always like, "Hey, check out us." So I'm sounding crazy by myself. So <laughs> some help would be appreciated. I like how you're just like planting these little seeds. Like, hey, come check us out. I'm like, oh, hey. hey, we covered this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. I see you do that all the time, and it's so funny. I know the moderators are like, "You got to calm down." Like, what is this person doing? Okay, so if you want to join uh, Patreon as well, you could get ad-free episodes as well as two bonus episodes a month. You can join us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. So, are you ready to get started, John? Always. Today, we are going somewhere we've never been before. Oh, okay. Ireland. Ooh, okay. Very exciting. Well, exciting. We get to go to Ireland for our listeners in Ireland. But of course, the case is a sad one because we are a true crime podcast. That's true. So our crime today takes place in the Republic of Ireland, just outside of Dublin. Also, caveat, I may pronounce things wrong. Please just give me some grace. I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm sure everyone will understand. Yeah. Although this is our first journey into Ireland on the podcast, it will not be our last because the cases that I found there and the ones that have been suggested to us from listeners are just crazy and heartbreaking. So we definitely will make a return to Ireland. But before we get started, I just want to give some trigger warnings. This case will deal with the murder of a 14-year-old girl. And sexual assault was involved in the crimes that were committed against her. So I just kind of like saying that at the top of the show. The story of Anna Kriegel should have been a fairy tale. She was adopted at a young age by a loving couple. She was beautiful and talented. But at the age where she and her peers couldn't recognize her beauty. Her mother knew that one day her daughter would do something wonderful in this world. But unfortunately, the story took place in 2018, where before Anna could reach her full potential or understand how special she was and how immature those around her were, she was bombarded by attacks on social media. And after that, this fairy tale would turn very quickly into a nightmare, a nightmare that rocked Ireland to its core and made its citizens question what was to be done. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Anna was born on February 18, 2004, in the city of Novokuznetsk in Russia. Shortly after her birth, she was given to an orphanage. 
The orphanage would be her home for the first two years of her life. Little attention was paid to baby Anna. There were just too many children to look after. She was always such a good baby, so it was easy for the attendants to always care for or settle down the more difficult children. For Anna and the rest of the children at the orphanage, their medical attention was hard to come by, as was mental stimulation for the growth of the children's cognitive functionings. In 2006, shortly after her second birthday, Geraldine and Patrick Kriegel visited the orphanage. They were looking to adopt. Immediately, they were drawn to Anna. And after the signing of some paperwork and things to be officially handled between the country of Russia and Ireland, the Kriegels were able to take Anna home with them. The adoption process had not been difficult for the couple. They both were perfect candidates for adoption. They both had great jobs. Geraldine was a senior manager for the legal department of CIE, which is a tour company in Ireland and parts of the United Kingdom. And Patrick, who was originally from France, taught French at the Dublin Institute of Technology. The two also had been married and lived in a beautiful home together for a long time. And what they really wanted was a child. So the Kriegels and Anna now lived as one happy family in Leakslip in County Kildare, which is about half an hour's drive from Dublin. Sometimes when children are adopted, their adopted parents have an aversion to talking about where the adopted child came from. And maybe just because they're scared the child might not feel as if they belong or may want to return. I mean, that happens for many different reasons. But the Creagels took a different approach to the entire concept. They talked to Anna often about her adoption and how lucky they felt that she was theirs and that she chose them. Out of respect, they kept the name that Anna's birth mother had given her, um, which really was Anastasia, but she went by Anna. And they learned as much about Russian culture as they could, and they always made sure that Anna had that in her life. So she could always appreciate who she was and where she came from. Yeah, I think I think that that's probably the most important thing when you're adopted, when your parents, you know, and you're adopting a child, you know, I mean, I think that that's what's always missing. And then the child craves is where did I come from? What's my culture? You know, but being upfront like that makes it a whole lot easier. And then to also bring her culture to her. Yeah. And letting her know that, hey, listen, like, this is what it's all about. Like, this is where you're from. This is what we do. You know, you got, you know, you do. I don't know. I think it's a really nice thing to do. And that's probably why their connection seems really good already at this point. Yeah, because I think it just establishes honesty and allows the child to create an identity of their own. Yeah. And build confidence, I would say. Yeah. Both Anna's birthday, the 18th of February, was celebrated each year as was August 10th, the day that she had officially been adopted by the couple. Anna was described as a spirited and loving child. She was athletic and loved to swim and dance. Now, beyond having some short-term memory issues, Anna always seemed to be behind the other children. But that's really because of many factors. English was not Anna's first language, and it had been hard for her. In addition to that, she spent the first two years of her life in an orphanage, 
And it's during the first three years of your life that your brain grows the fastest, more than any other stage in our lives. According to the U.S. Chamber Foundation, it is also this time that our brains are forming more than one million new neural connections every second. When babies have nurturing relationships, early learning experiences, and good health and nutrition, these neural connections are stimulated and strengthened, laying a strong foundation for success in school and the workforce. And this may be the reason for some of the troubles that Anna might have been facing in school because she just didn't have that early cognitive learning experiences that a lot of young children do. And really, the Kriegels were trying to do everything they could to make up for any gaps that might have formed because of her time in the orphanage. I mean, that's that's all you hope for, too. Like, you know, you want to be able to fill in that gap because you don't want her to struggle. You know, I think that's the worst thing, I think, as a kid, when you have, like, maybe, like, any, like, like learning roadblocks. I don't want to say learning disabilities, but, like, in her case, they're just roadblocks because of her, the neglect early on. Right. So it's like, you know, you don't want to be that kid. You get picked on. You know, they'll look at you differently, and especially because her, uh, you know, this English isn't her first language. That's even worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a little complicated because she wasn't necessarily speaking too much at the age of two, but she had only heard Russian. And now all of a sudden she's introduced to English. So as you can imagine for a child, that was extremely confusing. So she was definitely steps and steps behind. That's really sad. Yeah. And like you mentioned about like kind of being picked on, you have to imagine that Anna's already different. And this is just something, another thing that's going to ostracize her from her peers. Other than that, she had to deal with some physical ailments. She had to have a six-hour surgery while she was in elementary school to remove a tumor that was located in her right ear. And the removal of the tumor left her almost completely deaf in her right ear. Anna also had a large growth spurt between the ages of 12 and 13. By the time she was 13, she was already 5'8". Wow, really? Yes. Well, she is Siberian, so. Okay. It's her Siberian strength. (laughs) But the growth spurt had been and continued to be very painful for Anna because she was suffering from what is known as Osgood-Schlatter disease, which occurs when children ages 10 to 14. It kind of varies between um, children, depending on when they're growing. Um, they, when they grow too fast and their muscles cannot catch up to the growth of their bones. Fun fact. I had that. Oh, really? Yeah. I did have that. Well, how are you doing? I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, you know what? The funny part about it is I'm not even that tall. So the fact that I, I even went through this. I was thinking that, but I didn't want to say that. Oh, no, it's okay. You could be rude. I'm um, not- <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I had that. And uh, it was actually really, really painful, like especially like by the knees. But yes, I had, but I, and I, I had like a... Um, there's almost like a bone growth in my right knee. Yes. Yeah. They say that is, um, from what I was reading, the condition often goes away when the growing stops and the muscles are able to kind of catch up or strengthen, but some long-term results might be growth on, on the knees. Yeah, and it stopped. So, yeah, you're, it's very accurate. Well, I'm glad you're yeah. okay, John. I, I'm fine. You know yeah. what the funny part is? I'm only 5'11", so it's kind of weird. But, yeah, I did grow up. I, I had, like, this crazy growth spurt, same thing, mm-hmm. in this, like, short little period of time. So I guess that's what happened. We also do appreciate you saying you're 5'11 and not 6 feet. Oh, you're- I'm not going to do that. I'm not that type yeah. of person. 
<laughs> like I'm not six foot. I wish I was, but I'm not. So it's okay. We still all love you very it's okay. much. Five eleven's good. I think five eleven's great. I think that that's over average. I think. Yeah, it is over average actually. So, we're good. You're good. You're good. So needless to say, Anna was in a loving and caring environment, but she was having some figurative and literal growing pains, but also had to work harder to academically catch up with her peers. Because of this, Anna had some troubles in the friends department. She was different and she was very tall, which I know doesn't seem like a big deal. It seems so silly to us now. But remember when you were 13 years old and all you wanted to do was fit in and the littlest things meant the entire world to you. She already felt different for so many reasons and now she was taller than every boy in her year at school. And this is something that's just going to further ostracize her. The girl that wanted to fit in could do nothing but not fit in. And I'm sure if you wanted to hide, you probably couldn't because you were the tallest in your class. Yeah, it's kind of hard to sink <laughs> down into your seat yeah. there. Because she didn't have many friends, um, and at some lonely times she felt like she didn't have any, she lived a very sheltered and insular life. One thing Anna did do was she had like a dancing group that she participated in, and that's really where most of her friends are going to come from. But those are going to be friends outside of school, so school becomes very difficult. She does have people at school that were nicer to her than other people, but she didn't have any friends at school. Once again, that's really sad, but I'm also glad that she at least had an outlet that she was able to do outside of school. Yes. So that's good. Yeah, the dancing did help. And Anna did have a YouTube channel where she posted videos about different fashions and makeup she liked. And some videos were even of her singing and dancing. On her YouTube channel, she did have about 100 subscribers, which as a 13-year-old in the early days of YouTube was actually quite an accomplishment. Hey, that's more than me, right? I know. Well, <laughs> I, you don't have a YouTube. Did exactly. You? No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, is there a YouTube channel no, I don't but, know about? You know, at 13 years old, you have more than I do. So so the comments were positive for the most part, but there were those annoying early day trolls that said things like, go die or that she should be executed. Something I am sure affected the young girl. Because of this sheltered innocence, Anna's teachers reached out to her parents to discuss Anna's advancement in school. Her resource teacher which means that Anna was in what we would call a containment class for special education students, said she was nervous for her to move to secondary school because Anna was so innocent and she was nervous that others would take advantage of her. Geraldine and Patrick were actually very in-tune parents and they were open to the concerns of her teachers and shared in their sentiment. They were proactive and set up a meeting with Anna's future teachers and principal of the secondary school that she was going to be attending. They voiced their concerns about their daughter being susceptible to peer pressure and bullying because of her insecurities, especially relating to her height and her academic abilities and the fact that she was adopted, which the kids already relentlessly teased her for. That's really sad. I mean, it's it, it isn't it like insane how kids at such a young age can be so cruel. They are horrible. 
it's like there they're is horrible. no like they're they're in an, their own section when it comes to how cruel somebody can be, and especially like middle school aged kids. Absolutely, I find that in the higher grades in high school, it um, kind of like settles down because everyone's so concerned with themselves. They're kind of in their selfish mode. But in middle school, they are the worst people of all time. And all you have to do, really, is just mess up one time. Or, or just be different. Just be different. Have one hair yeah. out of place. That's it. It it's, doesn't matter. It's disgusting. And then they just kind of pick up on it, and they just don't let go. Yeah, this is why I don't teach middle school. I mean, I can understand that. Yeah. I would want to either. They also smell a little weird. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they all do smell weird. You should try walking down a middle school hallway. Probably smells like Axe body spray and No, B.O. it smells like tacos. Tacos? Like it's gross. Like, yeah. like, like it's spicy? Yeah, like it's spicy. Because like, smell like the, spice? the BO is so bad, it's like spicy. Uh, that's actually disgusting. Yeah, sorry. All right. Yeah. I hope no one's eating right now. Well, yeah. don't eat during a true crime podcast, guys. I mean, I, I would <laughs> be that person that would do that. So. Yeah. All right. So, sorry. Little tangent there. Unfortunately, the Kriegel's fears were realized when Anna started secondary school. She was bullied and she was taunted for her height. And the fact that she was adopted. There's like a special monster in the world that would make fun of a child for being adopted. Um, she was also made fun of for her short-term memory issues, as well as the deafness in one of her ears. Most of these bullying incidents occurred online, which is very difficult for students. When a child is the victim of online bullying, it's very damaged to their psyche, their self identity their self-confidence everything it kind of tears them apart because there's no escape when we think about the traditional sense of bullying that occurs within a school or on the school grounds those kids prior to the introduction of social media they got to go home right they got to have their safe haven but when you're the victim of online bullying there is no safe haven for you It's a constant barrage of attacks wherever you are and whenever they feel like posting or sending something. And no, just leaving social media, because I often find that people that are disconnected from like school age children always like to say, well, just leave social media. It's not as easy as that because it's impossible for these kids to leave social media and It's not going to stop the attacks. It'll almost make it worse because the presence of the person isn't there. Yeah. Plus, you don't get to see what's being said or what's going on. Right. If you disconnect from it, it's almost like at least you could prepare yourself maybe even a little bit for what's to come if you were Mm -hmm. to see it. It also, what we've seen is create extreme anxiety within children. But from all the accounts that I read, Anna seemed to be um, really resilient with this. Um, But as you can imagine, inside, I'm sure she was being torn apart, and we do see evidence of that later on. The Kriegels took screenshots of the attacks and brought them to the school. But this didn't really help the situation. And unfortunately, this does very commonly happen. Instead, it made things worse. Recently, in 2020, the Irish Parliament approved the Harassment, Harmful Communication, and Related Offenses Bill, which would call for criminal sanctions and penalties of up to 10 years in prison. However, in 2017, when this was all happening to Anna, that bill had not yet been created. And like many others suffering from the same abuses, all she could do was endure the tortures. Now, in 
um, the United States, there is very strict laws about the school getting involved with online bullying, even if it's happening outside of school, because it does affect the school time activities and the police getting involved right away. But same thing, this is 2017, so the laws were also different back then. So I feel like the laws are finally catching up to what is happening with technology, which does take a while. I think that that you could say that, I think, in general, right? I think that laws, especially for online things, anything over the internet, take a very long time to catch up. Yeah. Like, it's it's ever-evolving, so it's hard to make laws to something that's always changing, always, you know, shifting. It's just kind of difficult. Well, I think also, too, because when you think about it, all the lawmakers are older, so they don't understand this new world that the kids are trying to navigate. And something that a child might understand, someone older might not, because they really can't conceptualize the idea of online bullying and what it really could mean to somebody. Yeah, that's a good point. That October, the harassment went beyond the internet for the first time. Anna had been out chaperoning a dance for young children as a volunteer one evening. As she walked home, she was approached by four other boys that were a little bit older than her. They would not let her pass and they began to taunt her. They asked her over and over again to have sex with them. As she tried to get around them, one of the boys reached out to grab her in what was described only as an inappropriate location. When Anna was finally able to get past them, she ran home hysterically crying. Her parents called the police and filed an official complaint against that boy that had touched her. But in the end, the boy ended up only being cautioned by the police and um, told basically don't ever do something like that again. Now it is after this event and the continuation of Anna's harassment that we will see some cries for help from her. The first would be when Anna painted a black eye on herself while in school during art class. Her parents were called in for this for like a meeting And during the meeting, Geraldine voiced that she believed, and what is heartbreaking, um, was that Anna most likely did this as a reflection of how she was feeling inside. And after this event, there was actually many fights that occurred in school, because I guess this incident kind of the painting of her eye black, it brought to the authorities in the school the attention of the bullying that was taking place. And that caused more and more conflict. So she did get into a lot of fights at school and she was actually suspended as a result of one of those fights. Isn't it sick, though, that you suspend the student that's being bullied? Yeah, well, there's... I'm sure there's more to it. I know. But I just, like, just that right there just bothers me so much. Because if I had a kid that was being bullied and treated this way, I mean, for you to get suspended, for the kid to get suspended... For maybe protecting herself or or whatever the case may be. Like, I don't know. I guess it's a very fine line. <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. I do because you would want your child to defend themselves and you would hope it would never get physical. But usually at schools, I'm sure it's like this also in Ireland as it is in the United States. It's the the person who initiates the fight that gets the, the harshest punishment. Yeah. But sometimes it's that person that's the victim. So it's always a problem. Trust me. Like when that happens in school too, we get upset. Did your parents ever have that talk with you? Like defend yourself if you had to? 
Yeah, they did, but I never um, really talked about any bullying that that happened. And I was kind of always like, let me just take this internally and deal with it even now at 32 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, they like had that talk with me about it, but I never really told my parents about any bullying issues that ever happened with me in school. I would have to say same here, but I, I mean, I got bullied one time. Just one time in my whole entire Just life. Just one time. One time in my whole life. It was in first grade. That was it. Oh my god, Tom. This but is, my, how but, do you remember that? I, you know why? Because I remember my dad telling me if someone is, because this kid would, you know, hurt me, <laughs> he would hit me and stuff in first grade. Oh so I, I remember I told my dad one time, and my dad's like, "Yeah, you know, I'm giving you the authority to go into school, and if he touches you again, to punch him in the face." That was my dad's advice to me. And my mom like got as a seven year old. Yeah, and my mom was upset because my mom was like, you know. To tell my dad, don't tell him to punch somebody in the face. Like oh that's God. not right. You know, so it's very conflicting ideology there. Um, but I, um, I wound up doing exactly what my dad told me to do, and uh, my mom had to go to the school. It turned into this big thing in first grade because I punched this kid in the face. Oh my God! I feel like dads always do say that. Like... I, I do. I, I, I think so. I think that's very a dad thing to do. My dad was always like, just grab him by the neck. I'm like, Dad, what am I, the Hulk? <laughs> I'm sorry, about? that was really funny. You got me good there. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, what do you want me to do? You want me to choke him out? Like, what? what what's... Like, what? Yeah, I see. You see, I. Yeah, I don't know. I think dads take it to the extreme. They're like, <laughs> they choke do. him out, punch him in the face. Like, what are we teaching? <laughs> what, are we, what are we doing here? But anyway, oh my God. sorry. I had to just. I had to say it was. It was funny. That is funny. Well, um, so this is actually one of like the most heartbreaking details that I ever read about like an online bullying case. And it was really something that kind of drew me to the case because I was so heartbroken by this detail. Okay. Shortly after the suspension, Geraldine and Patrick discovered that Anna had created several social media accounts and through them, she was participating in her own bullying. So she was bullying other people. No, she was bullying herself. Oh, I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. She felt like it was the only way that she could belong. And it also reflected in her self-esteem and how she felt about herself. Right? She, through this whole process, because nothing negative had ever happened to the people that were doing this to her, she learned to blame and hate herself for being herself. So she was being mean to herself as well because that's how her hate towards who she was was getting out. That's heartbreaking, actually. I know. Like, man. It's so sad. And after her parents kind of found this out, they agreed um, with the school because they did bring this to the school's attention that Anna needed to seek outside counseling. And she also had to share all of her social media account passwords with her parents from this point on so they could monitor what was taking place. But again, I feel like here is another opportunity and point where these children really should have been punished for what they were doing to her. And like I said, the laws and the understanding from the school, I believe, wasn't up to par with what was happening with technology and children. Yeah, like I don't want to I don't want to use this term loosely, but like it seems like a oh, boys will be boys or like, you know, like oh, children kids will, will be, be children. Kids. Yeah, like. And that's not what's going on here. It's way more, it's way deeper than that. Yeah. 
and this poor girl who who is so vulnerable and susceptible like they said in their beginning meeting with the school and it's it's sad because I don't want to say anyone you know dropped the ball here but I mean, I feel like more could have taken place. Well, I feel like the yeah. parents are doing everything they could do. I mean, I think they there's no there's not not much more they can do. But I think it's that the school a little it, bit. The school has to be able to do that. I mean, look at the end of the day, when you have a child, that child is in the care of the of the school. Whether you know from from L, you know from elementary, whatever you want to call it, from the moment they go in to the moment they leave, they are responsible for them in every aspect. Like, it's just, that's the way I view it. Well, when they're at school. When they're at school. I mean, that's their responsibility. It's just really sad. So that one I felt like, ooh, that got me. Yeah. So on Monday, May 14th, 2018, Anna had woken up for school as she always did. However, this week was different than the others. Anna had exams. And that was something that she was a little anxious about um, because she never really did too well on tests. And she was also a little tired because the day before the family had like a family get together and she'd done a lot of things and hung out with her cousins. It was nice for her because she felt, you know, like she was happy and she belonged, but she was tired. As Anna was having breakfast with her mother, she reminded her, that she was going to have to write a note for her to leave school early because she had her monthly session at Kildare Youth Services. Her mother wrote the note for her and let her know that she would be in Dublin for a meeting and would not be getting home until later on. Geraldine kissed and hugged Anna goodbye, and as Anna headed for school, Geraldine headed to the train station. The plan had been for Anna to eat lunch at school and then head to her therapy session, but she's a teenager. So instead, she wanted to go home for lunch. So she left school a little bit earlier than she needed to so she could go home, eat, and then head to her therapy session. After counseling, Anna went back to her house and had a snack of oven chips, which, please don't come for me if I'm wrong, I believe is like french fries. Oven chips? Oven chips. I've never heard them be called that. Well, but I... Because we are from America. <laughs> no, I know. but That's actually pretty cool, though. Yeah, oven chips. At this point in the day, her father was home. She then tried to call her mother. It was 4.02 p.m. Because Geraldine was in a meeting, she couldn't answer the phone. She wasn't alarmed by this phone call because her and Anna often were in communication throughout the day. They either were texting or calling. So she made a mental note to call her daughter back when she got out of the meeting. Um, But she assumed that Anna was staying home because it was very rare that Anna left the house. After her mother did not pick up the phone call, she headed up to her bedroom. At around 4.55 p.m., the doorbell rang. Patrick was outside in the garden relaxing when he went up to go get the door. On his doorstep, he found a boy that he vaguely knew Anna went to school with, but he didn't actually know the boy's name. And we won't know his name either. Throughout the rest of the case and the trial that will follow, he will be referred to as Boy B. Okay. Boy B asked if he could speak to Anna, and Patrick invited him in to wait. He then went up to his daughter's room to let her know that a boy was here to speak with her. 
According to her father, Anna seemed a little shocked that someone was calling for her because it wasn't something that had ever happened before, but she did come down with her father. As Anna talked to the boy, Patrick did not just go back outside into the garden. He kind of hung around to see what was going on. He said at one point Anna and boy B were in the hallway, but he couldn't really hear what they were saying because they were whispering. This wasn't something he really thought anything of because it's something teenagers often did. They really didn't like being overheard, so they kind of whispered. After this, he heard Anna run back up to her room, which was when he kind of invited himself back into the picture with the two children to see what was going on. As Anna came down the stairs, it was evident that she had done so because she wanted to retrieve a hooded sweatshirt. The hoodie was one of her favorites. It was black with white symbols on it. She told her father that she was going to go out for a little bit before dinner. Patrick reminded her that she had exams to study for, hinting to the fact that maybe she should not be going out because he knew that Geraldine would want to study with her. But Anna flashed a big smile at her father and said she would be back in just a bit. And I can imagine... One of Anna's smiles probably melted his heart because it's his daughter and he knew that she was having a hard time. So to have a friend was something she so desperately wanted and he didn't want to deny her going because that might have been devastating for her. Like, you know, somebody's finally calling for her. Let me go. That this is like hurting my heart right now. I got to be honest with you because, you know. You know, that, like you just said, you know your child's going through a lot of crap. And you don't want to be that parent that stops that kid from possibly having some enjoyment. Right. And I think that that right there is something that's going to put his guard down. Like. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not going to be as concerned that she's leaving with a boy or, or any, you know, leaving the house and going somewhere that you don't even know. When you want her to have friends. When you want her to have friends. Right. And that's really hard because now he is the only thing stopping for what's possibly to come. And that is a hard thing to swallow after the, everything is, I'm sure, after the end of this case, we'll find out. You know, that's going to be, I'm sure, a hard pill to swallow. And I, I feel terrible already for, for this man. For this man. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Because I'm sure that, you know, this kind of leads into other things where it's like the, the, now the mother's going to blame him or they'll blame they each don't. other. They, they're very oh, okay. great. They're very I'm good. good. Uh, at least at least that's not happening here. But, you have some solace in that. Oh, still, this is heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And How can you do this to me, Kay? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, you know, he wants her to be happy. So he smiles back at her and he lets her go. And I am sure this is something that haunts him but i think this is also something that anyone would have done considering all the circumstances yeah right in the quickness and excitement of it all patrick realized that he hadn't even asked the two where they would be going and as he realized this he walked back to the front door and went outside like opened the front door and he saw that the pair were a bit too far away to call off to them but it looked as if they were walking in the direction of St. Catherine's Park. Anna was walking behind Boy B, who was carrying a small backpack. 
He noted that it was odd that the two were not talking and that Anna was kind of trailing behind him. But again, he just chalked it up to kids being kids. At 510, Geraldine was now on the train back home. And because she had some free time, she called her daughter back. Anna did not pick up the phone. Usually, Geraldine left voicemails for her daughter, but she figured she would be home soon to talk to her, so she didn't leave one. When she reached her house, she was surprised to not see Anna in her room. She went out to see her husband, who was in the garden again, and she asked him where Anna was. He explained the whole story to her. Right away, Geraldine got a feeling in the pit of her stomach that something was wrong because no one ever called for Anna and she hadn't picked up the phone. See, only a mother would have that feeling yeah. and put that together because unfortunately men just don't think like women do. Yeah. Like we're not thinking like that something bad could happen from that. No, I agree. You know, it's just so different that like how, you know, mothers and fathers are so different. I agree. And I think that happens in a lot of cases we have is where like the father will say something and then the mother's like, no, I knew something was wrong. You just kind of get this feeling in your stomach. At 530 p.m., worried, Geraldine sent her daughter a short but loaded text message that every child who has ever been on the receiving end of knows means business. Home now. Oh, no. That means get home. (laughs) Run home, that means. After waiting the amount of time they think it would have taken from her to walk from the park back to their house, she sent another text message to Anna because she had not come home yet. Answer me now or I'm calling the police. Geraldine had not known what to say. You know, she didn't necessarily mean that at that moment, but she was desperate to talk to her daughter and wanted her daughter to be home and be okay. So it was kind of just something she said because she was so anxious for her to get home. After waiting a little bit and Anna still not even answering the text message, she told her husband to wait at the house in case Anna returned while she walked to the park to see if she could find her. She walked all around the park Um, in the places that Anna usually went, and she didn't find her daughter anywhere. When she returned back to the house, the couple ate something quickly and then chose to drive around to look for her. Maybe after she went to the park, she decided to go somewhere else. They knew that their daughter loved to go on long walks while listening to music. Maybe she had decided to do this. But there was no luck. Patrick admitted that he was unsure really of what Boy B's last name was. So when the couple got home, they scoured Facebook to try and find out who he was because they did want to call the police. And they didn't know who Boy B was, where he lived or who his parents were. And they wanted to give the police some direction or sound like they knew what was happening because now they were like, okay, maybe we were a little too desperate for her to to have friends and yeah, I mean, it's it, hard. Yeah, I mean, hard for them. It clouds your judgment a little bit because, like I said before, it's you don't want her to like suffer further. Having a friend's awesome. You know what I mean? Well, I think also at 14 years old, I think it's very common for a new person to come to the house and then you just go out with them and your parents don't really know them. It's not like when you were kids, when you were like really young, of course, because you have your parents know the other kids' parents because they have to coordinate 
because you're so young. But at 14, (laughs) you don't really know a lot about all of your kids' friends. Yeah, no, it's true. The couple first went to their friend, a retired detective, who told them that they would have to act immediately. And they couldn't mess around. They needed to go right to the Garda. And he was referring to the Garda Shohana, the local and national police of the Republic of Ireland. At first, the Garda detectives were not immediately concerned. They believed that maybe she had gone out with friends. But the Kriegels tried to desperately explain that Anna really didn't have any friends like that. Like, it's so normal for the police to kind of say, oh, they're just out having a good time. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. She never goes out. So they tried to explain to the police that, yes, she had some kids that were nice to her at school, but no one ever hung out with Anna after school except for, you know, like her dance friends. But they were in different locations all around town. So they were not in walking distance to her and that she had been horrifically bullied in school and had been for years. Oh, you know, I want to add something here. I I just thought about it. I mean, I don't know if we we know this detail yet, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Why at this point? Now, a boy came to the house. Correct. Okay, she lives with this boy. We're not bringing up the fact that she had a run in with a couple of boys and one of them inappropriately grabbed her right so like i would want to know now is the boy that came over there one of the boys that stopped her in the past i will tell you it was not okay but even so that would be on my radar though if i was the mother or father i would say hey listen there was an incident where she was walking home from school Mm -hmm. she was stopped and then she was touched inappropriately by one of the boys there's obviously a record of it because the police were involved and said don't ever do that again right but this is a different um kind of police oh okay okay well i'm just trying to say like at least there's like a sort of record of that. there is a record of that taking place and and i would definitely have brought that up they did when they were explaining how she was bullied they brought up that incident that had taken place the fights at school they brought up the online bullying okay they were very vocal about what had happened to anna gotcha geraldine also said that it was very uncommon for anna to not be in communication with her like this To not answer a text message was just something that Anna would not have done. The first thing they wanted to do was to determine who Boy B was. Because Patrick and Geraldine did not know him. And Patrick had said that Anna had not really known him as well. Like, she kind of in her room gave him the vibes that they weren't friends, but she knew who he was. Eventually, they were able to determine the identity of Boy B. And where he lived. When they went to his house to question his parents, they found Boy B was home. He, with his parents behind him, said that he did go to call on Anna, and the two of them had gone to St. Catherine's Park, but he had left her there at around 5.40 p.m., and the last he had seen Anna was in the park. The Garda and the Kriegels searched the streets near their home, the park, and visited the homes of classmates they knew about. But there had been no Anna. You know what it sounds like to me? That this boy B... It's kind of... This sounds weird to say this, uh, you know, because it's a kid, but why do I get this feeling that boy B goes to this house, she knows him, so it's, it's, it's familiar, 
and he's able to lure her out of the house and then someone else is lying in wait and that's why he's home do you get what i'm saying i get what you're saying kind of like you know like he's involved but maybe he is luring her to a place just for somebody else then he leaves her there goes back home and says i you know i left her at the park so it's like a bait and switch oh yeah exactly interesting that's what it sounds like yeah the following morning the search continued the garda had set up a grid system i I hope that's how you pronounce it guys everywhere i'm seeing garda but then sometimes it's spelled different so just please bear with me and i apologize don't give us one star because i'm pronouncing something wrong it has happened (laughs) before it It has it has happened before (laughs) i deeply apologize so i'm just gonna call them the police we're just not cultured enough that's all that's all it is i've really not really left new jersey a lot right actually yeah but i try my hardest that's okay. our goal that's our goal now we have yes. to get cultured and go places so we can understand the pronunciation okay <laughs> <laughs> um so they set up a grid system that was um to be searched by professionals And this grid system covered not just St. Catherine's Park, but also the surrounding areas around it. A family liaison officer was assigned to the Kriegels to help them navigate this very difficult time. They gave the liaison officer a picture that they had of Anna wearing the black hoodie that she had left the house in, which is incredibly helpful. Late in the evening that same day, there was a press release from the Garda asking for the public's assistance in helping them trace the movements of Anna Kriegel and basically saying this is where, like, she had last been seen at her home in Leak Slip and then later at St. Catherine's Park. And if anyone had been around those areas, if they could please contact them so they could be witnesses in the movements of this girl well when you when we say park i mean technically we don't even know if she was at the park because i mean he well now he said they did go to the right uh, like boy b said park but they only know the the general direction as the father saw her go in that direction the only place they could have been going is the park if they were headed in that direction okay all right so they definitely went to the park got it okay Um, In the interview, given the detectives were asked if they had any current witnesses and they said they had individuals that they still had to question further, but they really needed the help of civilians in this case. And it was true. They had a lot more questions for boy B because he was the last person to have seen Anna. In a more formal questioning of boy B, he revealed the reason that he had gone to call on Anna that day was he had been doing so for his best friend. Well, see? There you go, John. I knew it. <laughs> so this boy, his friend, is going to be referred to as Boy A. Okay. okay. A, B, got it. Yes. Boy B is the one who went to the house and asked for her to come out. Boy A was the one who was in the park waiting. Okay. Okay. Boy B told the investigators that everyone knew that Anna had a crush on boy A, but he did not share the same feelings towards her. Boy A had wanted him to bring Anna to the park. So that was what he did. He went to Anna's house and walked her back to the park. Once there, he left Anna with boy A and went home to complete some homework. 
So basically, he was just kind of like the conduit to get Anna there. And then he left. That's what he's saying on his initial interview with the police. Are these two boys the same age? They're best friends. They're both 13. Okay. It sounds like also that boy A must have, like, there definitely is like... um, A dominance. A dominance, but like, I don't want to say like intellectual, but like, just like the planning of this seems very advanced for a 13-year-old. Because like, think about it. If you, you could easily just walk to the house yourself... You know she has a crush on you. You know she'll leave with you. But the fact that you're making your other friend go get her and you're waiting out of park seems to to me that it's being planned and there's thought put into this because he doesn't want to be the one um, that investigators or the mother or father could look and say, hey, you were at my house. So for a 13-year-old to like think that way is weird. Like It's weird, I think. No, I agree with you. I I would say yes and no because – I do think, yes, it could speak to a higher level of planning and, like, sophistication when it comes to that. That's the word I was looking for right there. Um, Criminal sophistication. Yes, yes. But it also could just be, like, a dumb 13-year-old thing where it's like, oh, I I like this person. You call them and ask if if they like me kind of thing. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. So I think it could go two directions as of right now. I mean, I guess it seems like I could be giving too much credit to a 13-year-old. Yeah. But I'm just trying to say, like, that... Well, we're still like yeah, only still halfway learning. through. We're still learning, but I just think that that is something to maybe just think about. That that's, you know, right. yeah. It's an it's an interesting thing to put on the back burner. Yeah, absolutely. Boy B went with the detectives to show them where he had entered the park with Anna, where they met Boy A, and then through which exit he left. The detectives left markers on all of these locations so they would be able to go back to the information and see if the any evidence corroborated this story or any evidence was kind of around these locations to give them clues as to what could have happened. From the park, the detective said goodbye to boy B and his parents with an understanding that he may have to answer more questions later. As the detectives were leaving the park, they were stopped by a man and his son. The man told them that he assumed that they were looking for the missing girl, and he suggested that they check the back of a local sewage plant because it's where a lot of kids like to hang out. They thanked the man and headed back to the station. The following day, they wanted to get the story of Boy B again, but they felt like the story would work out better and it would save them a lot of time if they just had Boy B and Boy A together along with their families. So they told the family, the families of boy A and boy B, let's meet in the park. And they just figured we'll get their stories together. We'll see if there's any inconsistencies and we can call them out immediately because at this point they're not, they're only investigating a missing person's case. So they want the stories from these boys quickly versus doing an in-depth investigation. Like if they knew something had happened to Anna, they would have never put these boys together, but they wanted to find her. They didn't think that anything nefarious had happened between the children at this point. That's because they're 13 years old. Right. Correct. (laughs) However, the police were shocked when they got to the park and they saw boy A approach with his father because it was the same man from the day before. Who said, oh. oh, check the sewage plant. 
Interesting. Isn't that weird? That is, actually. Mm-hmm. So on this day, Boy B is going to walk the detectives down a completely different path than he did the day before. Why? So now they had they were approaching a BMX track that they kind of had set up in the park. And when the boys neared the entrance of the track, they kind of gave each other an odd exchanging of looks like they were trying to communicate without communicating kind of thing. And this is when the police were really thinking something weird was going on between the two boys. And they said they kind of stopped what was happening because they knew Boy B had lied to them about the area they went to. So they're like, you know what? We're actually going to go back to the station. We're going to get formal statements from the both of you. Okay. And see if they line up. And see if they line up and also kind of question them scare them a little bit because something seemed to be very wrong regarding the two boys and their story as to what had happened that day okay and then just to clarify when they were told about the sewage plan was did that come from the father of the of boy a the father do you think that the father has anything any knowledge of what some might have been doing i do know but i don't want to tell you anything all right okay well i'm putting a red flag on that then because that's weird okay it's almost like to get them off their trail of their son, almost. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, because you wouldn't just say that. I always, I mean, I'm, I'm hypersensitive to that only because it's like we, we do true crime, right? But, like, you wouldn't just walk up to a cop and go, yeah, you know, you guys should uh, go look over there. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, people dump bodies there all the time. You know, like, yeah. like why would you, <laughs> just go check over there. Don't check over here. Go over there. Okay, that's very interesting. You know, if you if you were a concerned parent of of the neighborhood, you would have said something like, "Oh, if you need any help, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be on the lookout. Uh, if you need anything, let me know." It wouldn't be like suggestive to go somewhere specific, or just don't get involved in the or investigation. don't get involved. Yeah, sure. I don't know. So at the station, Boy B stuck to his story that he didn't know what happened to Anna because he had left her in the park to go home and do homework. He claimed that he didn't know what happened beyond that point. Boy A was also detailed in his account. This is also where the friendship between the two boys is going to begin to be on shaky grounds. He said that, now this is Boy A, he said he was doing homework at home. These two boys are doing a lot of homework. Um, When Boy B called him and asked if he wanted to go to the park with him. He agreed and went to the park to meet up with Boy B. But when Boy B arrived, he had Anna with him, something Boy A claimed he didn't know about. He said he knew Anna from school, but not well. He vaguely knew that Anna had a crush on him. And he said at one point, um, Anna said to him, I have something to ask you. I was wondering if you wanted to go out with me. And he said he had been kind of surprised that she just asked something like that. And he didn't really feel the same way, but he didn't want to hurt her feelings. So he had to think of something to say that wouldn't be mean. He told her, I'm sorry, but I'm not interested. He said at that point, Anna didn't answer. She said nothing and walked off and that she looked both annoyed and sad at the same time. In this story, though, Boy A did confirm that Boy B had left them. 
Now, this would have all made sense. And so tragic that something may have happened to Anna after she had just had her heart broken um, for no reason. But there was something strange. Boy A was injured. He was walking with a limp and had visible injuries. The detectives asked him what had happened. And he said that after Anna left, he decided to walk home too. While he was walking home, he was grabbed and attacked by two men. They were adults. They grabbed him and pulled him to the ground and began to kick him. He said the attack finally ended when he was able to get himself off the ground and kick one of them in the head. He said they then ran away. What a sensational story. Very much so. But that's exactly what a 13-year-old would tell adults. That he was able to fight two adult men by kicking one of them in the head. You can't yeah. even reach their head if and you're standing I'm up. And I'm sure that he can't even give a description of what they look like. Wow. Or if it's probably like made up. <laughs> well, um, he did have... They asked to look at his injuries. And his arm and leg were injured, and he had been walking with a limp. He also had a few cuts on his face. The detectives obviously were skeptical of this because it would seem impossible that a child of boy A's size would ever be able to kick a grown man in the head, especially after all the injuries he said he sustained. They asked him to provide a description of the men who attacked him to a sketch artist. The detectives then contacted everyone who had contacted them to say, like, hey, we were in the park at the same time as a disappearance, and nobody recognized the sketch of these two men. They even um, looked through all of the CCTV footage of the entrance and exits of the parks, and these two men were not seen anywhere. Of course. Of course not, because they're not real. Right. The history could not be corroborated. It also is kind of strange to say someone asked you to go to the park to hang out, they bring a girl, then they leave. The girl asks to go out with you. You shut her down, and then you get attacked by two men. But you're able to fight them off at the age of 13. You know, it seems interesting that he has injuries like that because she she's a tall girl. Mm-hmm. She probably put up a fight. Yeah, she's a dancer and a swimmer, so, so she's very strong. I mean, if something went down in that park, he probably sustained injuries from her. There's nothing else. Maybe. There's nothing else that makes sense here. Because there's no two guys that are trying to take somebody. No, there are not. Well, I mean, there could be, but not in this case. Well, I think they would have taken him. <laughs> they would have got him. Right, exactly. Yeah. Would such a coincidence ever exist that he were to get attacked and she were to disappear in the same day? It's not likely. Right. Okay. So I know our brains are in hyperdrive right now. So we're going to take a break to talk about our second sponsor of the show. Okay, we're going to switch gears here for a second. Okay. Glenwood House had been beautiful. Built in 1800, it sat on 100 acres of farmland or 40 hectares if we're talking Irish things. I didn't, I didn't even know what a hectare was. Well, 40 hectares are 100 acres. So now you know. Okay. So hectares are acres. Well, like it's a, it's like another measurement oh, of, of a, okay. like square 
land. I don't okay, know. It doesn't matter. We yeah. understand. I, okay. I'm sorry. I don't know why so, I overcomplicated that for you. It's okay. Okay. It's fine. Thanks. I get it. You made me say it more than I had to, and now I hope <laughs> I said it right. So it shares the border with the beautiful St. Catharines Park. The gorgeous manor, located off of Cold Blow Road, as it's known to the locals, had been home to the Colgan family until 1990. Once the family left, it sat abandoned and was not cared for, despite the fact that it was named a protected structure because of its location and cultural and architectural significance. In 2000, the community had been excited because the home and its acreage had been purchased for 10.5 million pounds by a man linked to a hotel fortune. The company that he was associated with claimed that their goal was to establish a 62-bedroom nursing home using the existing structure and adding on to it. The plan was welcomed, but never came to fruition. By the time the Gardas searched it during their grid search of the park, during their search for Anna on May 17, 2018, it was in ruin. A fire had caused the roof to collapse in several places, and many of the rooms had been gutted. Bottles, cans, and filth littered the floors, as it was a local place for teenage kids to go and drink. It had been included in the search because of the property's proximity to the park. As the trained searchers, who were police officers, approached the scene, they knew that they had to keep their eyes peeled because this was a spot where the teenagers really went. One of the men stepped in. It was dark inside as the windows had been boarded up. The only light came from a broken ceiling above. As soon as he walked into the first room of the house, he smelled what he knew was dry blood. He looked around the room and called back to his partner. There's something in here. It's either a mannequin or something terrible. And like we've said before, it's never a mannequin. Never. No. That, like that one case, remember? Yes. The person thought it was a mannequin on the ground? Yes. And the other one where they thought it was a mannequin in the lake? Yeah. No. Guys, I think it's never. because your brain doesn't want to believe that there's another human being just dead in front of you. Yes. I I, I really believe that. I think it, like your mind wants to just block it out of your memory. Or I completely your, agree. Your vision. <laughs> the man stepped a little further into the room, careful not to disturb anything. He just wanted to confirm what he thought he had seen. He did, and he left the house. He nodded to his partner, who yelled into his radio to the other searchers, Find. Anna was on the floor of a large room on the first floor of the abandoned house. She was naked except for her black socks. One of the detectives who was working the case said that at first they believed Anna had something over her face. However, he realized once he had established proper lighting in the space that it was her hair. He would later say that her hair wildly fell over her face as if she died suddenly as she was thrashing about, trying to fight or escape. Pieces of her broken iPhone and her clothes were strewn about the large room. Next to her body was a large stick and a cement block. Both objects had blood on them. The cement block also had large chunks of what would later be determined to be Anna's hair and pieces of skin. 
Blood pooled around the girl where she lay, but it was clear by a bloody drag pattern that she had been dragged to the location she was in near a window. Blood was present in various spots on the floor, and blood spatter was present on the walls. This had been a violent attack. Around her neck, there was a long length of Tescon airtight insulation tape. Her one hand was up to her neck. She had managed to get three fingers inside the tape, as if she was trying to tear it off. With heavy hearts, the men and women of the Garda established a crime scene and worked to collect evidence. As was protocol, a general practice doctor was called to officially pronounce Anna as dead. And then her parents were notified. In the most gentle way possible, they were asked to go to the morgue that evening and make a formal identification of their only daughter's body. That's really sad. Oh my god. This is a rough one. Jeez. A forensics team was brought in and over the next several days they processed the scene. Every inch of the large room was cataloged and sent in for testing. And because this had been a party location for teenagers, it meant that every beer can and bottle and every cigarette, thousands of pieces of debris had been collected by the end of the search. Thousands of pieces of evidence. And they didn't know what was relevant to the case or what had been left there because of the parties. Um, While this evidence search had been taking place, and after the gut-wrenching ID of the body had been made, the autopsy was performed by a state pathologist. It was determined that there had been over 50 injury sites on 14-year-old Anna's body. 50 injuries. The lacerations and bruising almost covered her entire body. The most serious injuries were done to her head, face, and neck. The conclusion was that she had died from blunt force trauma to her head and neck. There had been signs of compression at her neck, however it was deemed that that compression had not been done by tape and had to have been at some point done during the attack, done by something else. There was evidence of penetration or attempted penetration of the vagina with something. However, the pathologist was unable to determine what or whether this had been done while the victim was conscious or not. There was a lot to be known about the sexual assault. It was very hard to determine. Based on the forensic evidence at the scene and the reports now obtained from the pathologist, detectives theorized that the following had to have taken place. Anna had to have been beaten to the ground with the heavy stick after she entered the room of the house. She was then hit with a heavy object, presumably the concrete block, and that had taken skin cells and bloody hair. She must have fought and fought hard. All of her false nails were found around the room. But again, she had to have been taken to the ground at some point because she was then dragged towards the window of the room most likely because that's where light was shining through the sides of the wooden boards. And it was there that she was sexually assaulted and tape was put around her neck. And that was where she had been left. Of all of the evidence collected at the scene, 
the most important forensic evidence came from the black hoodie that Anna had been wearing. On it, a semen sample had been recovered. The police made another appeal to the public. They wanted to know if anyone had seen anything in the park that day or around Glenwood House. But no one came forward. But it seemed, based on another test that they had performed, that they might not need to look too far for their suspects. When Boy A and Boy B had been questioned the day before Anna's body had been found, they were asked to hand in what they had been wearing that day of the disappearance. On Boy A's shoes, a pair of boots, blood spatter had been found. It was determined to be Anna's blood. Oh my god, okay. The blood was on that shoe in a way that the boy would have had to have been close to Anna when her blood had been spilled or would have had to have been right next to her. So this isn't something like, oh, he walked through the blood. The spatter was on his shoes. And this was not something that surprised investigators because they felt as if the whole time the boys had been lying to them. So now... I'm 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 just trying to put this in in you know I'm trying to put it in my mind here. So she, the examiner said the cause of death was what the blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Okay, and then most likely the cement block hitting her head. Okay, and then she was being choked though, right? She had been choked by something other than the tape. I was gonna say because the tape wouldn't have been able to hold like if someone was pulling on it. No, but then somebody must have put the tape around her neck at a later time after the neck compression took place or taped her neck and then strangled her, tried to strangle her, but was unsuccessful in doing so. So they must have stopped. A lot of times people don't realize how long it takes to strangle somebody. Right, exactly. Okay. I'm just trying to remember all this. Yeah. This is interesting. Okay. Or was this done as, oh, God forgive me, like a... sexual thing i always say like the hardest sentences out loud during this podcast but i never wish to say (laughs) Uh, when the boys clothes were taken so had been their cell phones on boy a's phone it's very interesting that most of this evidence is all boy a all boy a which is weird yeah it is weird um on boy a's phone some interesting things had been found first there was screenshots of a list of youtube videos The list was as follows. 15 most gruesome torture methods in history, horror films that will blow everything away, and until dawn, get Jessica's clothes off. So the third video is in reference to a video game, which is like a horror video game, where in one of the chapters, if you do something specifically, one of the characters strips down to their underwear. And then there was the creepypasta story of Jeff the Killer, as I'm sure every teenage boy with like a horror fascination had on their phone. Um, Now, these things can be written off as just things kids read or did or, you know, just as a little strange, but doesn't mean you're a murderer. Um, But what really caught the eyes of detectives was a search for abandoned places in Lucan. And... Glenwood House is on the other side of the park in Lucan. I'm just going to say this. Remember earlier on I said that I felt like there was a sophistication? Yes. 
I'm telling you that there was a lot of planning involved with this 13 year old kid. Like, I, I know, I know, like it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's just two kids being stupid, but I don't think so. I think that this kid is way more intelligent than other people are giving him credit for. Yeah. There's obvious planning. It's not good planning, you know, as far as like evidence collection. Obviously, we're seeing what's going on. Right. But the fact that he looked for an abandoned location, he didn't want to be at the, at the scene to pick her up from her house. Mm-hmm. He used to somebody else. You know, does all these things. Says, you know, trying to corroborate stories with, like, looks to his friend. Right. Like, there are a lot of things that he's trying to do to cover it up and to make it, make it like the perfect, quote-unquote, crime. You know what I mean? From a 13-year-old's perspective. No, I agree. I agree with you. Uh, so, th- there, he's, I don't even know. It's scary that a 13-year-old could could want to do that. Yeah. But I also think that there's more to it. I think that, like, I think that he's interested. There's, like, an interest of, like, things he doesn't know. Like, the whole video game thing, oh, getting her naked to her underwear or whatever in the in the game, whatever. Like, I think he's interested, but, I like, I don't know the all the psychologist ways of putting it, in, you know. That's so interesting that you say this, right? Yeah. Because... In one of the interviews, they ask Boy A what his interests are, and he says human anatomy. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what it's like beneath the skin. And, like, he likes looking at anatomy drawings. So you're correct in saying that he has this curiosity. Yeah. There's definitely a curiosity. Uh, a morbid curiosity. Yes. Yep. And then I think it's it's interesting because he could have picked anybody for this, right? But what did he pick? He picked her. Vulnerable. He picked Anna because she's vulnerable, number one, right? Yeah. And number two, it's easy because she likes him. Yeah, well, we're going to also get into what, another reason why he might have oh, picked okay. her. Oh, okay. But I'm saying those are, I mean, I, I would take a guess and say that those are two reasons right there. Yeah, I would say. It's easy. She's, she's um, targetable. Yes, it's easy for him to do that. So this was all enough for an arrest warrant to be issued and a DNA sample to be collected from both boys. Because don't forget, they have a semen sample. Detectives informed the parents that their sons had a warrant out for their arrest, and they would need to turn them in the following morning. What they did not alert them to was the fact that their houses would be searched after the boys were brought to the station. And they didn't tell them this because they didn't want them to destroy any possible evidence. The Garda had to be very careful in dealing with boy A and boy B because they were minors. They were 13 years old. And Irish law was very clear on how suspected minors should be treated. And that was why the parents of the boys were told prior to the arrest and they were to come with their children while they were brought to the station. They also, there's like a limit on the amount of time they can question them they're, they cannot be in a holding cell at all. So they had to really kind of make these interview rooms into like makeshift bedrooms so the boys could sleep there because they're not allowed to be in any type of cell. So there's a lot of very strict laws in Ireland to protect minors, which in some cases can be wonderful to have those laws in existence. And then in some cases, it could be harmful. Also, I think which he, is hard. I think you also have to be careful too as an investigator, right? Because if you suspect a kid of doing such a, like this heinous act, okay, you have to be careful too because if there is any evidence there at the home, and the parents are alerted to what's going on, they might—you never know. 
cover up for their children. I'm sure that that has been a thought in some, in parents' minds when their kids are being, you know, charged or looked into on something as heinous as murder. Well, that's why they didn't tell them that their homes were going to be searched. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a good call. I would say so. Yeah. After the boys were brought to the station, their homes were searched discreetly so the public was unaware of what was going on. They didn't want to put this cloud of suspicion over the boys if they go on to be innocent. So they went into their homes in plain clothes and the evidence bags were put into black sacks. So it wasn't obvious as to what they were as they were bringing things out of the house. In the beginning, the boys had been asked in their separate interview rooms if they knew the difference between right and wrong, truth and a lie. And they both explained that they did. With boy B being a lot more articulate and intelligent with his responses. Boy B? Boy B. Okay. The detectives that were in the room with Boy B described him as being very adult-like. And when they asked the same to Boy A, he answered that he was, like I told you, very interested in human anatomy and drawings of the inner workings of the human body. Boy A seemed to have this morbid fascination. Um, He seemed to be very strange, very off Both boys have no criminal record, no um, records at school. They're described as, um, although boy A is described as being a little bit odd, they are both spoken highly about by their teachers. So the interview room with boy A took a turn when they told him that they had found Anna's blood on his boots. He almost got sick and asked for air as his lawyer rushed to get him some water. The detective told him that the way the blood was on his boots, he had to have been there. But boy A was adamant that he had not been there when Anna was attacked. He was then shown a picture of Anna with the tape around her neck, and he said he never had tape like that. He was asked about the Google searches and what was found on his phone, and he said that he was not interested in torture films. And that was his only response. At this point in the interview, everything changed. The boy's lawyer had advised his client to answer no comment and I don't know to most of the questions because it was really clear that he was becoming a suspect and they had some physical forensic evidence to tie him to the murder. In the interview room with boy B, his mother, who had once been holding his hand, sat terrified in the corner as the questions her son was being asked made it more and more clear that he had been involved in what had happened to that girl. Are we getting to like this weird twist where Boy B was the one that did orchestrated this whole thing? I don't know. Because I, I, at first I'm thinking it's, it's, it's Boy A that orchestrated it, but now I'm thinking could it be Boy B because like it did, seems like... Did Boy B with his hyper-intelligence correct. take advantage of... The budding psychopathy in Boy A. That's what I'm getting at. But you did that so eloquently and so nice. So oh, I'll just I'll thanks. just piggyback off that. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking in my head. Uh, that's I think. I will tell you right now, we do not know the answer to that question. That's interesting. I also think it's a little bizarre that Boy A's response is to defend, like almost defend what he's into and say, "I'm not into torture born." 
It's yeah. a way of like defending his quote unquote craft. It's very interesting like, that you bring up torture porn because that comes up Cause later. Like, like I, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not what I'm into. Like he's defending what he's into yeah. and clarifying that that's not what he's into. Right. But I you know also, what I mean? um, based on what I've read, I nowhere has come out and said it, but I believe Boy A's family has more money than Boy B's family. Because he had a solicitor right away. Like, he had an attorney there with him, and Boy B didn't have that as immediately as Boy A did. Okay. And the two of them, although will become co-defendants, like, accuse each other the whole time. So the fact that one might have a better defense attorney is going to cause a lot of um, chaos between the two camps that are actually co-defendants with each other. Also, I just want to throw out – I want to throw this out, too – Ireland is very good to their minors because you they are. you know and you know I'm not lying here if this was in the United States they would those boys would already be in some like like institutionalized like holding area <laughs> you know Well and their names would have been leaked their names would have been leaked there would have been no discretion while gathering evidence Yep I think that we're very lacking in a lot of departments within our justice system so it's it's interesting right. to see this in another country Well slowly America is catching up to the rest of the world when it talks to the the punishments and the sentencing of minors There has been a lot of changes happening Well American sentencing is just more than other countries period Yeah but I think that that's changing but one of the biggest issues in America is the amount of minors that are charged as adults. Right. Well, because in America, for the ones that, for the ones of you that are not from the United States, in my opinion, our system is more about punishing, not rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. So it's just it's just right. a, it's just about punishment. Here's your insane sentence. Deal with it. Well, that's because we have privatized yeah, prisons. Of course, so. most of them are private. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, it's interesting. A lot of countries are about rehabilitation, if it can be really uh, rehabilitated. Correct. Correct. Whereas here, it's just punishment. Boom. 20 years. Uh, boom. And then you years. get put into and a system it. that you can it. never then, get out of. Because once you come out, even if you're free, you know, there's no, it's very hard for you to get a job. Yeah, we'll get you know, into the set, everything in this. You'll find yeah. it very, very interesting. Right, so I went off on a tangent. Anyway. No, it's okay. It'll It'll be relevant later. Yeah. So detectives were getting a lot more out of Boy B than they were getting out of Boy A. Boy B was now on his fifth interview and said that he had heard Anna scream. Well, if he heard a scream, then he must have been there. Right. And after he said that, it seemed to break some kind of like invisible barrier or dam. And he gradually let out more and more information. Boy B said that Anna had gone into the room with Boy A, like the room that she was found in. And even though Boy A told him to leave, Boy B decided instead to search the house, to go exploring. As he was exploring, he heard what he described as shuffling. And um, later on, he's going to say he thought that the two of them were going to like be snogging which means like making out. And that's why he didn't really want to leave because he kind of wanted to watch them, he said. Um, So when he heard like the shuffling, it made him run back to the room that the other two were in. And when he looked into the room, he saw boy A flip Anna to the ground 
in what he described as like a judo move. And he said that boy A then choked Anna, which we do know happened forensically, and began to take her clothes off. As this was happening, Anna said, no, no, don't do this. And boy B must have made a noise of some kind, he said, because at that point, both boy A and Anna looked at him. And he said boy A had a blank expression on his face. And he knew that he could have saved Anna. But instead, he ran away. And he ran home. Do you believe it? Um... You know what makes me believe it is the lack of physical evidence on Boy B or in the room regarding Boy B. I mean, I guess you're right, but I mean, at the, at the, at the same time, though, he could he could still physically be present in a doorway of a room and he was where watching a murder the whole is taking thing. place, right, and doing yes. nothing at all. I'm saying I don't believe. I can say, honestly, that I don't believe he participated in the murder. Physically. Physically, because of the lack of blood spatter on him. Okay. Um, But I'm not saying that I don't think he was involved and or watched. I mean, the one thing that we could rule out completely, I mean, we well, not rule out, but we know that he definitely partook in, in, in getting, getting her, her there. there. But did he know the intentions of boy A? I think it's... Or was he in on the plan? See, the thing is, I think that if their two best friends are talking, they've definitely shared their interests. They've definitely... And, then if, and if that's the case, they've probably shared their plans. The fact that he's waiting in a park and he's at the house grabbing her, to me, means that they've already communicated what's being done, in my opinion. Maybe. Like, what will, be, what like will happen? Like, he's leading her to Correct. the house. He's, yeah. Yeah. Unless he thought that their intention was to make out. But he... Sh- but, but he knew that. But he, well, he didn't. He he did everything he could to say that he didn't like her, and he, you know, didn't want to be with her. Well, maybe he didn't want to be with her, but he still might have made out with her. That's yeah. They are th- yeah kids. Yeah, true. All right, so we'll say we'll save the, the- theories for yeah, yeah. after everything. So the detectives were glad that they were getting somewhere, but they didn't think they were getting the whole truth. Like they thought that Boy B's story was just a little too convenient. But they could use it to get what they wanted. So the story that Boy B gave blamed everything on Boy A. So they printed the story that Boy B told and brought it into the interview room where Boy A was and said, look at what your friend is saying. He's blaming you. Ah, see, they're trying, they're trying to get one to flip on yes. the other. But you know what? They're not lying about it. No, they're not. Because that is the statement that was given. And the, uh, Boy A is going to confer with his lawyer. And the only response that's given was, Boy B is lying. That is all. Like, this is a good lawyer. This is a good lawyer. It's gonna, yeah. I mean, that's great. I'm glad they have a good lawyer. But you know what? Evident, there's blood evidence on the dude's shoe. Oh no, trust shoe. me. I know. Yeah. I'm just saying this guy knows the game. Of course, yeah. Just before the 24 hour limit for questioning minors was about to expire, Boy A was charged with murder. Within an hour, he was brought with his parents to the Children Court in Smithfield in Dublin for his first court appearance. 
Now, according to this amazing article that was written by Connor Gallagher at the Irish Times, which is linked in the show description as a source because it was an incredibly amazing source, the Children Court is the lowest tier of the criminal justice system in Ireland and rarely imposes jail time. It is a district court, so there can't be a jury, only a judge, who can at most give out a 12-month sentence. It is for this reason that all cases involving murder and rapes in the case of juveniles is transferred to a center criminal court where the minors are effectively tried as adults, kind of like in the United States. Okay. So boy A, it's because of the, the severity of the crime. Basically, yeah. which can is understandable, 100%. So boy A was remanded to the Oberstown Children Detention Center. If he wanted bail, he would need to apply for it at a later date. And he was taken from his family. When boy A's home was searched, a backpack was found in his bedroom. And inside of that backpack was a pair of gloves, knee pads, shin guards, a scarf-like hood, and a homemade mask. The mask was skull-like. It was skin-colored and only covered the top half of the face. The holes for eyes and nose had been cut out, and sharp teeth had been cut into the upper jaw and painted red. A considerable time was taken on this mask. And during the subsequent trial, this would be referred to as the murder kit. But I'm just going to say something really quick. We talked about Boy B's intelligence. This is just me throwing theories out here, please. This is all alleged. Um, when Patrick and his father saw them leaving, Boy B had a backpack with him. Oh, yeah. Good point. So it was his stuff. Well, we don't know. But this was found in Boy A's home. That's I know, but why would... He would need, why would he need a backpack? Okay, but then the only thing is this mask, this is Boy A's mask. So maybe they both had backpacks. This is like making of a child serial killer. I know. It's Hold on. We're not even done yet, buddy. Oh, God. <laughs> so Anna's blood was found on the outside and inside of the mask. Her blood was found on the knee pads, the gloves, and the backpack itself. Other pieces of evidence that were accumulated against Boy A were as follows. Over 12,500 pornographic images over two phones. Like he had two phones. Really? 12,500. Some featured like men in balaclavas looking in at semi-naked women. um, And he had a mask. Others showed a man choking a woman while another man watched. Videos accessed from the phone had titles called Anastasia, like porn videos titled Anastasia, which is Anna's full name. And others referred to Russian teens. Why? Okay. Can I just say something? Something had to have happened, in my opinion, allegedly. It's all alleged, right? I'm also going to say everything. That's the but, caveat. But it's weird though because it's like, why is this kid so hyper focused on sexuality? Something had to have happened here. Maybe. 
There was there's, also yeah, there's, searches. Oh, there's because there's no way this kid is infatuated with Wait, sex. It gets worse. Oh jeez. There's also searches for child porn, horse porn. What? Dead boy prank in abandoned haunted school. But none of these things were allowed to be admitted as evidence in the court case. Why not? Um, because of relevance. Well, obviously, the, the physical evidence was, like, the blood on everything in the backpack in his, like, murder kit, but the relevance of the... I, I can make an argument that that is completely relevant. Well, John, many of us could. Many Literally, of us could. her name is Anastasia. There's Anastasia's titles in some of the porn. Yeah, and some He obviously the... choked her out because he watched porn, didn't know what... He's 13 years old. He probably doesn't even know what he's doing. And that's another thing. He's watching this porn. Mm-hmm. Thinking that that like, well, that becomes like part of the defense of I know. like what he's seen, and I think that's bullshit because I you know you're hurting a human being. Oh no no no, that's not that's not what I'm saying. I'm just I trying know, to just, say though that's that what they will say. Everything that he watches, you know, is violent. Is violent. So he has created um, a correlation between violence and sexual pleasure. At a young age, which is horrific. And like you said, that might have come from maybe abuse that has taken place. It's it's quite possible. Or something he had witnessed. Yeah. So a dog walker would later come forward and say that he saw Boy A walking towards the Glenwood house. And Boy A's classmates would say he was very agitated and jittery after Anna had been officially reported missing. The semen on Anna's hoodie matched Boy A's DNA. Okay. And after that was determined, the charge of aggravated sexual assault was added to what he was charged with. All of the new evidence allowed them also to arrest Boy B again. Oh, okay. Arrested a second time, Boy B had more to tell. He said about a month before the murder, he had a conversation with Boy A, where Boy A asked him if he wanted to kill someone. He said no, and when he asked Boy A who he had been planning to kill, Boy A named Anna. And he thought he had just been messing around, but in that house, he saw him, he said, wearing his really cool zombie Halloween mask. From past Halloween. So that makes me, that does make me think the backpack was Boy A's because it had his personal belongings within it. Right. So Boy B must have had another backpack with him. Was he planning, I wonder what was in that backpack and what was he planning to use? That's true. But at least we could establish that that the, the, the contents in that backpack was uh, was Boy A's. Yes. When asked why he didn't help Anna or tell the police sooner, Boy B said that he did not know why he froze and that he was ashamed of it. He said he didn't tell the police because he was nervous that Boy A would frame him for um, being there that day and being the one to get her, which I think is a very interesting thing to say because I think Boy B is a little bit more intelligent than Boy A. He said that he was just trying to forget about it and pretend nothing happened. The detective still felt as if he was not telling the whole truth. And the public prosecutor agreed. So Boy B was also charged with Anna's murder. 
Why? Because he wouldn't come forward with information or they just they had stuff on him. They believed that he wasn't telling the full truth. And I think that they were thinking if he's charged for the murder as well, the truth will eventually come out. I mean, this is now like the, the fifth story that he's told. Right. So I think it, it's a tactic to try and pull out more information, but also of them to say, we think you're trying to alleviate yourself of guilt a little too much in all of your stories. You were involved a little bit more than you're saying. And I'm also sure if they were to do this and lump him into this, that there's a possibility that they could plea bargain. He could come out and tell the truth and they could use it against Boye. Boye. Now, usually the preparation for a trial like this, two defendants, a lot of witnesses, it might take maybe two years to kind of get ready. Well, in this case, it only took six months. Something the prosecutors would later be questioned about, but they said that the prosecutors and the science labs showed, um, you know, evidence that they sped everything up because they really wanted the country and the Kriegel family to kind of be rid of this horrid case. And they worked overtime to kind of get this trial just kind of sped up. And the trial would take place beginning in April of 2019. And at the time, both boys had met their bail requirements. So they were free, but they were under heavy supervision. The legal age of criminal responsibility in Ireland is 12. Both boys were 13. But this drops to 10 when rape or murder is alleged. Boy A and Boy B became the youngest people in the history of the state to be charged with murder. Wow. The youngest people. I mean, if you really think about it, it's also, it was you know, the time it took to put everything together and have a trial was also probably short because, I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, this is cut and dry. Yeah, uh, there's a kids, Yeah, there's a lot of evidence. Yeah, I mean, you have two kids that went in regardless of what capacity it doesn't matter they both work to get her alone and do this when you have more than just circumstantial evidence i can imagine it is a little bit quicker Quicker. to get your evidence absolutely the trial looked very different from others in ireland no wigs or robes the boys were able to sit with their parents in the gallery no media was allowed and the identity of the boys were protected only bona fide journalists um, that would not release the identities were able to be present in court. Boy B's defense was simple. There was no evidence that linked him to the crime. It was all connected to Boy A and corroborated his story. The gloves in the case of Boy A were very important because there had been no fingerprints at the scene. So... Because there was blood on the gloves, it showed that there was no fingerprints at the scene because Boy A had been wearing gloves, which showed criminal sophistication and planning. And he had to have been wearing the gloves when Anna arrived and might have been the one that attacked her first with the stick. Um, an expert said in the case of Boy B that boy B was showing symptoms of having post-traumatic stress syndrome because of what he witnessed. 
He said the boy had little understanding of what was going on, and his intentions that day were to watch boy A and Anna snogging because he thought that's what was going to happen. In conclusion, his lies were a result of his trauma and guilt and not his criminal plans. I mean, I will say that that's, a, that's a, the best way you can go for a defense. A hundred percent. There's really no other way, I feel like, at this point. He, I mean, he's lumped into this. So yeah. to just say he's suffering from, you know, stress from it, this, that, and you know, I, that's the only thing you could do. And there's no physical evidence linking him to the crime. Except for the fact that he was the one to lure Anna out of the That's house. That's the only thing. But that doesn't say whether or not he knew what um, Boy A's intentions were once she arrived at the house. And he also lied, too. Let's not forget that. He lied. He, about lied. A, he lied, what, five different times about what was going on. And no, like, the way that, like, within Boy A's phone and room, they found physical evidence. But they also found circumstantial evidence of, like, pornographic images, especially, like, I don't want to say torture porn, but yes, kind of like torture porn and child porn and Russian teens. And none of that was found with Boy Bay. Yeah. Anna's parents were present in court for every horrid second of the trial, including the torturous 40 minutes that it took for the pathologist to list all of Anna's wounds. 40 minutes it took. That must have been really hard yeah. to sit there and just listen to. Um, really the hardest part for Anna's parents visibly during the trial was parts of Boy B's, um, interviews with police because they were played. Um, it's when he described the attack and remember, and Anna said, no, no, don't do this. That really bothered Anna's mother. And then when Boy B was like describing Anna, he was callous in his description and saying that she was an outcast and a weirdo, and that just really hurt them. Of course, I mean, way to, way to add uh, insult to injury, right? Yeah. I mean, this is that's pouring crazy. salt on wounds. Yeah, really. Uh, during the trial, the boys were given fifteen-minute breaks every hour, but most saw this as a reprieve for themselves because the the trial was just great. Because what had been done to this girl was horrible. So people really, um, the jury or the people that were watching the trial, they did in, like that there was the 15-minute break. But then it's also like, then at one point, two weeks in, Boy B suffers a panic attack. So they end, they adjourn for the day. Then they lessen the time of the court from ending at 4 p.m. to 2 p.m. And kind of, um, and I want to stop here for a second and discuss this because the feelings of the public at the time was outrage. Why are all of these graces being given to these boys? Oh, give them 15-minute breaks. Let them sit by their parents. Let's not release their identity. Meanwhile, this girl was tortured, sexually assaulted. Every painful detail about Anna's life and Anna's death was being broadcasted nationally. But let's protect boy A and B. And the public was really kind of outraged at this, which is understandable. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the only thing, the only thing that I would agree with, is keeping their identity a secret for the time being until we can kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah, like innocent. I understand that. Like keep them behind that. But everything wall else, wall yeah. of anonymity, until we know they were guilty. Yeah, until we get a verdict. Yeah, but 
I, I will admit everything else is ridiculous. Everything else is ridiculous. They don't get breaks like that. They shouldn't be given breaks like that. Listen, the, the reason why the panic attack... They're just attack, being treated as so uh, fragile. You know what? The panic attack just makes me think that it's just playing into the theory or the defense that he's suffering from post-traumatic stress. Correct. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous. Sitting next to their mother. Why do you get to have comfort? Did Anna get any comfort in her Absolutely last moments not. of her life? But at the same time, though, as an adult, as a 30-year-old adult, to sit here and say that about a 13-year-old kid is also conflicting. I know. Am, can I, know. I really be that hard on, on, a, on a kid? Well, I can be that hard on a kid that did that. Well, I'm and, just... And you're right, because yeah. as of right now in the trial, it has not... There has been no verdict. I'm just trying to say, like, it's a weird it's place to be in. Because you want to be like, no, you two did this to this girl. Yeah. You should be getting no comforts at all. But then and then again... But then the whole point is that's the point of trial yeah. is to determine whether or not they did. That's correct. I know. I, it's difficult. It's This one's polarizing and it's, yeah. it's very complicated and there's so many layers to it. And, you know, I know that all of these laws and rules are in place to protect and it's crazy. It is. It's just, it's hard because you don't know how to feel. And it's just because it, because the Anna's story is just so heart wrenching that it just makes you so angry, you know, but yeah, who do you take this anger out on? And that's where we're, you're kind of left with that. Like, okay, what now? So the trial lasted for seven weeks in total because of the breaks and the shortened time frames, And the jury was left with the instructions that, the cases of each boy must be considered separately, but they had to reach both decisions at the same time. So you have you can't say, oh, we can't figure out boy A, but we have a sentence on boy B. Like you have to have both verdicts at the same time, but you have to consider both cases as separate. Okay. Okay. So the jury deliberated for 14 hours and 24 minutes over the course of five days. During their deliberations, they never asked any questions about the laws, as usually happens, but they did ask to re-examine some exhibits, specifically the stick, the gloves of boy A, the tape, and the seven hours of interview that the detectives had with boy B. And on Tuesday, June 18th at 2 p.m., they had a verdict. Again, from the Irish Times article by Connor Gallagher. Boy B sat with his eyes shut while clutching his mother's arm. He appeared to be doing breathing exercises. Boy A's father put his arm around his son. Have you reached a verdict on any of the counts? The registrar asked the forewoman. She replied that they had. Her hand appeared to shake as she handed over the verdict paper. Boy A was guilty of murder and aggravated sexual assault of Anastasia Craigle. Boy B was guilty of murder. The forewoman confirmed that these were unanimous verdicts. The youngest people to be convicted of murder. The courtroom was silent for about 30 seconds. Boy A appeared to cry while Boy B held his head in his hands. Boy B's father began shouting. A prison officer told his wife, he's too high, he has to get out. 
The father slammed the courtroom door as he left, before returning a few seconds later, embracing his wife and son. Boy A's parents wept and hugged their son, but remained silent. You bunch of scumbags, you bunch of pricks. Innocent boy, Boy B's father said. He clapped sarcastically at the court as the two teens were led away. Geraldine Craigle sat with her eyes closed as the verdict was read out. She and Patrick remained calm and composed. They stood and nodded to some jurors as they left the room, and some members appeared to smile and nod back. Their parents then embraced their friends before turning and hugging some detectives. Patrick even kissed one of the nearby journalists on the cheek. They thanked the prosecution team before being led upstairs to join the family in the victim support area. The sentencing of the boys took place on November 5, 2019. Boy A was sentenced to life with a review period after 12 years for Anna's murder. He was also sentenced to an additional 12 years for the sexual assault. But these sentences were to run concurrently along the murder sentence. So like the 12 years were served together, not in addition to, not so on not, top of. All right, so not 24 years. Correct. 12 okay. years at the same time. Boy B was sentenced to 15 years, and it, this is to be reviewed after a period of eight years. The boys will both be offered new identities when they are released. You know, it's it's um, it's interesting because I'm happy. Okay, I'm happy that the family got justice, right? Because I mean, that's what you want in a case like this. She did not, you know, that kid. She was a kid. She did not need to die. Her life was horrible. Like it was so sad for those parents to watch their daughter go through everything she went through, and then this be the outcome. You know, like, it's just, it's it's hard. But I will say, I do like, though, the fact that they're going to serve time. Hopefully rehabilitate. Hopefully rehabilitate, and then it will be reviewed. Because even though this is an, a, a, a disgrace that of what they did, in the in the case of Boy B, let's say you want lives to be changed. You yeah, you want lives to be changed, and you want to just at least it's being reviewed. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? They're not stuck in there forever, so no one can turn around and go, "Oh, that's unjust." They were children. Yeah, I mean, if you boy, don't want if any boy of that, Boy B gets let out, he's gonna be like 21. Right. I mean, if he's under, got a lot of life to live. If it's the eight years, and if he's getting a new identity, I would imagine that his record will probably be clean or put in a file and locked away. Yeah. Um, now, I I do think that everything could have worked out very differently for Boy B if he would have been up front, up front to the police. Yeah. But then if this is true and if his innocence is correct, then the post-traumatic stress does explain things. There's actually an appeal process going on right now with Boy B. Boy A has not asked for any appeals. You know what's interesting? Normally when we cover cases... The most, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. The biggest mystery is like who killed somebody or whatever, right? Now but it's he, why. Here it's what's the motive? Yeah. What's what's the motive? Why? Like how how much involvement 
did both have in in carrying this out like there's actually I mean, more I think it's so question clear marks that boy a was the one who physically did this we just don't truly know the role of boy b i also when the father of boy b had his outburst in court i think it's very interesting that he said innocent boys it is so clear that both boys are not innocent Boy A is not an innocent boy. He has his semen was on her clothes. (laughs) Her blood was all over his belongings and his shoes. Um, I don't know. I just find I found that statement weird. Maybe he meant innocent boy. He probably did. He's lumped. They were lumped together. And maybe it was just like a in the moment thing. It it was a speech error. Hey, listen, I have speech errors all the time. Even in this podcast, I have speech errors all the time. Um, (laughs) You know, so like it it could just be one of those things where he's speaking so fast and he's he's obviously distraught that his kid's going away for a long time. I agree. So it could have just been something that was just kind of set off the tongue real quick. I just think. Um, that this case is so interesting because you had both boys, the youngest to be convicted of murder in the state. And I just want to really know, because I know we do have a lot of listeners from Ireland. We'd love to hear feedback as to like, uh, as this was playing out, what was the thought process in the country and what did people think and what's your opinion and, and did even we if, do a good yeah, job? And even if we're, you're not from Ireland, it, I would want to hear what people yeah. have to say. I mean, No, totally want to hear what everyone yeah. has to say, but I'm just interested to yes. see if, you know, I can read stuff all day long, but sometimes when you don't understand 100% of the culture or the country, it's it's hard to get a good grasp on a case. So I agree. It is always interesting to hear. But I do want to finish it with this. Okay. Um, Anna's parents asked for the donations um, in lieu of flowers for her funeral, where they did ask everyone to dress in bright clothes and sparkles like Anna liked. Um, and her dance troupe was there. Um, instead of flowers, they asked for donations to the Russian Irish adoption group. And they started a charity to help other teenagers with the adoption group, the Russian Irish adoption group. And they also created another program called Anna, Anna's Network of Adolescents, um, in her memory to help, you know, the transition of adoption into um, for other people from outside the country into Ireland. Her memory will live on through her parents, but it is heartbreaking to know that the pain that that little girl felt while she was trying to navigate her way through her early teenage years um, was present in her life and also the pain that she had to feel in the last moments of her life. Like, that's so yeah. sad. I mean, listen, for all for all we know, you know, she could have grown out of that and found herself. Oh, she was beautiful. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, te- as, as pre-teens, you're like so infatuated with being the same, but she was so gorgeous and she was so tall and so strong and, and so beautiful that I think she was going to, she was like a supermodel, but the kids didn't even notice it yet. You know oh, what I'm, what I'm saying? saying? Like after a while, the, those things don't matter. You go into the real world and you find yourself. But she and, never got to figure I that know, out. I know. And I hope that her parents find solace in the fact that they were able to give her moments of like extreme comfort and she felt so loved by them. So yeah. 
They were they were supportive. They were supportive parents who really cared. The best parents you could have yeah, asked for. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That was a rough one. Yep. You always pull at my heartstrings. Oh yeah. You really do. Okay. So before we go, we do want to thank our new patrons on Patreon. So thank you for all of your support, Leah, Laura Aalto Satala, Kateri Lee. Shirley Hatch, Brianna Ambario, Danae Gore, Chastity Prosser, Sarah Moss, Nicole Guru, Stacey Wolf, Christy McMahon, Ariel Tolk, Lauren Campbell, Justin Hill, Brianna Fullwood, Brittany Blevins, Louisa Van Bolscom, Angelique, Bridget White, Erica Kelly, Melanie Knights, Elizabeth, Ashley Foreman, Brittany Based, Kate Gill, Rita Immanen, and Jamie Andrews. Thank you so much, and we hope you're enjoying all of the new Patreon episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans, and we'll see you later. Bye, guys.